Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. We've got a big one for you. One of the greatest living historians on the podcast now is Professor Richard Overy. He's a professor of history at Exeter University, and he is quite literally the world's foremost expert on the Second World War, I think, fair to say. His books are essential reading for anybody interested in the greatest conflict the world's ever known. He's just written a new one called Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War. And importantly, he gives the dates as 1931 to 45. He makes it very clear that the fighting we think of as a build-up to the Second World War is in fact an essential part of that great clash, not just a minor precursor. Next week on the anniversary of the outbreak of the Second World War, I'll do another one of my podcasts and my sort of monologue. I'll talk everyone through just how, when and why the Second World War broke out. But this, <laughs> this episode features someone who is a lot more qualified than I am. So this is kind of essential listening if you're interested in that. And hopefully I can add a bit of detail here and there. It was great to finally have Richard Overy on the podcast. It's been too long. If you wish to listen to back episodes of Dan Snow's History without the ads, or you wish to access the World's Best History Channel, please become a subscriber. You go to historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv. There you subscribe for the price of a, uh, well, actually, a sort of microbrewery brewed ale every month. And then you get access to the World's Best History Channel, all these podcasts, thousands of podcasts, and you'll never be bored again. You get to banish boredom. Pretty sweet deal. It's getting to the point now, to my great surprise, that I'm meeting people on the streets who are subscribers. It used to be people came up to me and said, oh, I've seen you on TV. Now they go, I'm one of your subscribers. It always takes my surprise because I can't quite believe this is real. And it also makes me feel like I should give them a hug, which I think is not really what I should do. So apologies if you ever come up to me and say that and you see a kind of flash of indecision in my eyes. That's what's going through my head. Please head over to historyhit.tv, join that revolution and get subscribing. In the meantime, everyone here is Professor Richard Overy. Enjoy. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I've had a feeling for a long time that in 100 years' time, people are not going to feel about the Second World War the way that many do today, which is this kind of messianic, once-in-a-thousand-year struggle against evil. But it will be seen within the context of the great European great power wars, the global wars, the war of Spanish succession, Seven Years' War, Napoleonic Wars, French Revolutionary Wars, First and Second World. They will be seen as having much more in common than at the moment we think they're dissimilar. Well, I think that if you want a context for the Second World War in particular, I think we need to go back into the 19th century, but perhaps not too far back. This is not the same as the struggle against Napoleon, though people have often made that kind of comparison. It does seem to me the critical thing really is from the mid-19th century onwards, 
Once European powers had become industrialized, more militarized, the struggle for global power became central to their sense of identity. And it's that struggle which goes on from the mid-19th century through to the 1940s, which seems to me to be a context that really frames both the First World War and the Second World War. Identity is very interesting there. What do you mean by identity? Well, in this case, I've coined the term in the book, the nation empire, that by the 1870s, 1890s, European nations were now modernising rapidly and so on. And they had a strong sense, I think, that their identity as powers relied really on, on acquiring an empire. The Germans wanted one, the Italians wanted one. Other empires were extended as well. Even in Japan, which began to imitate Europe, of course, there was a strong sense that having an empire would define them better as a nation. So this concept of a nation empire seems to be central to the whole period from late 19th century through to the Second World War. What the Germans and Italians and Japanese wanted in the 1930s was something they'd wanted 30, 40, 50 years before. They wanted really to be taken seriously as major imperial powers. So much scholarship now on whether actually empires were a drain on the metropolitan resources or whether they were great engines of wealth and power. Was this desire deeply misguided? Did these home nations accrue any benefits from these empires other than getting in giant fights with other imperial powers? Well, that was one of the downsides of empire. Clearly for the British and French, of course, there were advantages. Really, merchant communities grew enormously wealthy on imperial trade. Over this period, the Dutch too depended very much on the development of the Dutch East Indies and so on. And I think the important thing is what one German historian has called fantasy empires. In the late 19th century, all European powers were good at creating kind of fantasy empire in their minds. Most people in Europe didn't go to the empire, never saw it, were not interested much in the empire. But the idea that you had an empire full of you know all the normal things, you printed all the stamps of each colony and so on, was seen as an important way of defining you as a great power. And it was misguided because in the end, the cost for the European powers was endless expenses, military campaigns of one kind or another. In the end, too, the descent into the First World War, and then, of course, the tragedy of the 1930s and 1940s, which really showed, I think, how the pursuit of territorial empire was now anachronistic. The damage it did was enormous. It's often said the Second World War just grew naturally out of the First World War, and people talk about a sort of Second Thirty Years' War. So you think we really should think about the Second World War and the First World War together? Well, I think we should, because in the First World War, all the major states that took part, apart from the United States, were empires, of course, either dynastic empires or colonial empires abroad. But I would link them in, in a rather different way from the way they're normally linked. And normally linked, the failure of Versailles and so on, resentments built up between the great powers, etc. This was another balance of power crisis, etc. I mean, I would see the First World War as a war which benefited Britain and France. Their empires grew larger and more successful in the 1920s, penalised the Italians because they were not given a share of the new empire. The Germans lost their empire entirely. The Japanese were frustrated. And so out of the First World War and its aftermath, they grew what I see as toxic resentments, really, against the British and the French who dominated the global order, and a desire to imitate them, to have their own territorial empires, which would, in some sense, benefit the home population and enhance their prestige. The problem I keep finding myself thinking is, obviously this looks absurd to us, but do we not let Russia, the Soviet Union and America off the hook? Because weren't they empires? 
hadn't America been a great example of what Germany's trying to achieve, which is create Lebensraum in the American West across the continent and and then grow into an unbelievably wealthy nation state? I mean, I always think the Americans get away with murder, like a bit of a sleight of hand. They go, well, we're a bit, of course, we're not an empire. We're a cohesive nation state. Well, lots of people like to think of America as being an imperial power from the 19th century, but it seems to be misleading because what I'm talking about here is the pursuit of territorial empire. Now, the United States, of course, expanded across the continent in the 19th century. I can call that imperialism perhaps of a kind, but the, the creation of territorial empires in which the populations were subjects, of course, not citizens, which could be exploited fully by the imperial power. It seems to me to be the defining feature. Now, the Soviet Union, too, inherited the Russian Empire, which had colonized, of course, much of Central and Eastern Asia. But again, the Soviet Union is, is the non-imperial power. Lenin and his heritage is strongly anti-imperial. And it does seem to me that the critical element in this is the desire on the part of European states and then later of Japan to occupy territory in Asia, in Eastern Europe, in Africa, in the Middle East, and to use that as a way of defining themselves as great powers. Even after 1945, of course, there's a lot of argument, was there a Soviet empire, was there an American empire? Well, I argue in this book that, yes, of course, they're hegemonic powers, there's no doubt about that, they dominate the regions that owe them some kind of allegiance, whether it's the communist world or whether it's a capitalist world, but they're not territorial empires in that sense. And that's what dies in 1945. It takes some time to be killed off up to the 1960s, but it seems to be that 1945 is the death knell of a particular kind of empire, which dates right back to the period when the Portuguese and the Spanish first colonised in the 16th century. I suppose that's the bright legacy of the Second World War amidst all the horror, is it does kill off this idea that empires are desirable, achievable, legitimate, and that waging war to expand one's empire is good statecraft. Yes, it does end that period, but it does end it, I think, very messily. And I think one of the things I've tried to stress in the book is not only the role that, say, British, French or Dutch imperialism plays in the earlier period, but how difficult it is to disengage. They do so violently. They continue to wage imperial wars, whether it's in Malaya, whether it's in Algeria, whether it's in Indonesia, through the 1940s and 1950s, often at great cost in lives and money. So that the end of empire in that sense is extremely messy. I mean, it's massively violent from the defeat of Germany, Japan and Italy. But it remains violent down to the 1960s. So we're looking at a period of almost a century in which the struggle for global empire, in a sense, defines the nature of conflict. It's so interesting because the historiography, our memory of the Second World War has been so spun and laundered here in the UK. And we talk about the Battle of Britain. It was a struggle for freedom. It's a struggle for democracy. And actually, I've always been struck whenever I've talked to veterans of that struggle that they thought they were fighting for king and empire. They saw it quite simply as another great imperial struggle, which happened to be fought in this case over the skies of Sussex, but they would have been happy to fight in Malta or the Middle East or wherever they'd been sent, as their fathers had before them. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, in the case of France, of course, France was defeated so quickly that that hardly matters. Uh, The French did see their war as a war of mobilising the empire against German power. But yes, in the British case, fighting the king and empire, And indeed, much of the fighting takes place in imperial areas and by imperial forces, of course, and not by British forces at all. I mean, I think that's a perspective that we've, in a sense, lost sight of. 
you know, in North Africa, the majority of forces were not British. In the Middle East, the majority of forces were not British. In the Far East, the majority of forces were not British. The British war is really from Normandy onwards. And I think that we need to reconfigure the way we look at the war. It doesn't mean, of course, that the British Empire was the same as Nazi Germany. It clearly wasn't. And clearly it's a good thing in the end that Nazi Germany, Japan and Italy were defeated in the Second World War. But we should not, by exploiting that idea, lose sight of the fact that this was a war about competing empires. How should we see British strategy, given that mindset? The desire to, for example, postpone opening up a second front in Northwest Europe. I mean, is that just about material and logistics and numbers? Or is that also about the nature of this imperial mindset that had other priorities around the globe? Well, it's a paradox, actually, that the man chosen to defend democracy in inverted commas was Churchill, who was an arch-imperialist. And there's no doubt that Churchill's view of British strategy in the Second World War was very coloured by the desire not to lose the Asian Empire, to retain a grip on the Middle East as the kind of hub between the Asian Empire and the motherland, to defeat the Italians in East Africa, to uh, fight the war in other people's territory, Egypt, for example. And all this was, of course, to make sure that British global power was retained, because if they just abandoned that, as they could have done, they would have been left stuck in Britain, then they would have had no choice but to wait until it was possible to invade Hitler's Europe, and if America had not come in, that would have been impossible. But for Churchill and for so many of the British leadership, the critical thing was maintaining that global grip, because without that, it was assumed Britain would not be a major power. Should we look at Churchill's rhetoric in 1940? Does he talk about that? Or by painting Hitler as a sort of once-in-a-millennium threat to all that was decent and civilised in humanity, is he trying to distract? Is he trying to have his cake and eat it? So you maintain your own empire whilst destroying that of Germany. Well, yes, that was effectively what Churchill wanted to do. And the difference in 1940, of course, is that the metropolitan power itself is threatened. And that does make a difference, of course. You know, the rhetoric, the struggle is seen as a struggle now, which is a very British one. But in fact, it involved the Royal Navy and the Air Force in much more limited conflicts than the conflict that was eventually to engulf the Far East and Eastern Europe. But for Churchill, 1940, it's important. You've got to protect the metropolitan power. Otherwise, you have no empire at all. In the French case, they failed to defend the metropolitan power. They were defeated by the Germans very quickly. And the French Empire began to unravel also very, very quickly. So that 1942, the French colonial minister resigns. He says there is no longer an empire. What's the point of having a colonial ministry? And so Churchill didn't want that to happen because if Britain had been defeated or had had to admit defeat in 1940, then the empire goes to... Listen to Dan Snow's history. I'm talking about the Second World War with Richard Overy. More after this. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, We'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Brits in both the First World War and the Second World War didn't go as far as Wilson, but they embraced the language of, to a certain extent, freedom and democracy and self-determination in order to overcome their imperial rival. In doing so, did they undermine their own claims to empire? Well, that's an interesting question. They did use internationalist language because that seemed respectable. And they did want to defend, obviously, democracy in the, in the Western world. They did see themselves as the power that ran so-called liberal empire. In other words, an empire that was not too oppressive and so on, et cetera, et cetera. But this was, to a large extent, hypocritical, really, in the 1920s and 1930s. But, you know, we need to distinguish between the two things. There was the majority in Britain that did share that view of the liberal order, did share that view that the defence of democracy was worthwhile, et cetera, et cetera, without really thinking, I think, a great deal about empire about what it meant. Even in the Second World War, there's this curious paradox and nobody really questions the fact that you're at war with three new empires that want to build an empire and you use the rhetoric of democracy and freedom as Roosevelt does to justify why you're at war while conveniently forgetting that you've declared virtual martial law in Egypt, that you've put 60,000 people in prison in India and so on and so on. It's a paradox, I think, which is never really resolved in the Second World War but has to be confronted fully in 1945, once Germany, Japan, and Italy are out of the way. Post-45, although as you say, the Europeans fight sort of bloody stubborn rearguard actions for empire, 
What's more devastating to the idea of empire? The horrors that have been inflicted on the world during the greatest imperial struggle the world's ever known, 39 to 45, well, late 30s to 45, or the fact that Europe was bust and European voting publics wanted welfare states. I mean, what was the, obviously it's an interaction, but when you talk about identity and culture, how much of this is how we felt and how much of this is just we came up against the limits of what Sterling could do? Mm. I mean, I think in the British case, the problem was that there was a large leadership core, even among the Labour Party, that thought hanging on to empire was a good thing. You could liberalise it and so on, but you'd still need to have an empire. And yet that very obvious sense that uh, the British public had too, that the German-Japanese empire building had been vicious in the extreme. And if that's really what empire building meant, well, they wanted none of it. They wanted to get back to building a welfare state, building housing, looking after people, building up social welfare services, and so on and so on. And there's plenty of evidence that by 1945 in Britain and the United States too, these were really priorities. Let's get the domestic front right. And if that means withdrawing from empire, what's striking in Britain, I think, is how little effect that seems to have on the British population on the 40s and 50s. You would assume that there'd be a terrible reaction, there'd be a kind of hangover from um, the end of empire. But actually, even the loss of India, for example, in 1947, doesn't have the sort of impact on the British public you would expect it to have which suggests that actually all along empire has been something pursued by elites rather than by the masses. I'm sure that's true. And I also wonder, was it easier to serve up a diet of Dan Buster's films and D-Day stories and Battle of Britain stories to salve any pain that there might have been from the end of empire? No, exactly, yes. I mean, remembering the Second World War that way, but it heroic British struggle against Hitler, which was not untrue, of course. Sidestepped everything else about the global order or disorder during the Second World War and Britain's role in you know, the Middle East, in the Far East, in India, and so on. And indeed, 20, 30 years later, I could find myself teaching students who had no idea what the all-red route was, I had no idea that Britain had possessions from Gibraltar to Aden to India, and were puzzled by the fact that I would talk about empire in the context of the Second World War. So very quickly, I think, that was eliminated. And instead, yes, you have the dambusters narrative of the Second World War. Speaking of empire, you give a lot of attention in your book to the war in East Asia, starting in East Asia, really. Why do you think this is something else that you feel needs sort of rebalancing? Yeah, I mean, the war in the Far East is enormous, of course. The number of casualties are vast. And it's something, certainly in Britain, perhaps more than America, that was lost sight of in the years after 1945. We now, thankfully, have a large historical literature now addressing this question. There's a huge amount of research being done in China and Japan as well. But it was a critical factor. Look at China today. China is the superpower. And we have to look back to the origins of a new superpower in the struggles that went on in Asia in the 1930s and 1940s. And that's why I brought it into the book, because it seems to me that if we're talking about grand geopolitical changes brought about the war, this is really one of the critical ones, the way in which East Asia changes. And how about the way in which naked Japanese push for empire in the 1930s? How did that affect not just Chinese internal politics and East Asian politics. How do you think it affected the European scene? Well, for Europeans, of course, East Asia was a long way away. I mean, it was part of an imperial zone, but they were too worried about what was going on at home, about the threat of fascism and so on. 
They paid much, much less attention to that. As a result, of course, Japan could get away with a lot more than one might have expected. We always focus on, for example, the Manchurian crisis. The League of Nations discusses that as quite a flurry in Britain of protest against the occupation of Manchuria. But then almost no interest whatsoever in the fact that the Japanese then push on into controlling the whole of Inner Mongolia and northern China over the course of the next three or four years. It's almost disappeared from the history books. And I think we need to refocus. If we're talking about this big war, as I do in the book, then we have to globalize it. We have to think about What is a big war? A big war between China and Japan. So what else do you feel requires recalibration in the way that we remember and study the Second World War? Well, I think focusing on the Asian war is very important. I think also we need to be more aware than we usually are of the extent to which German invasion of the Soviet Union really was about building labels, um, building living space. I mean, that's something everybody talks about, but how did they do it? What were the plans? Why is it that this is the area where the Jews are killed? Why is it that the Germans could produce a plan that they wanted 30 million Slavs to basically starve to death? You know, why is it that German imperialism results in the death of an estimated 16, 20 million people in this area? Now, there's quite a lot of literature written on that too, but I think, again, you don't tend to see it as a program of German empire building and everything that went with it. It's a classic example of vicious colonialism. We tend to see it as a series of battles, which eventually the Soviet Union won, which we then attach to our Western narrative. And you also point out the long historic, so Nazism not as an abominable new force in Germany, but this is a, an urge that Eastern space seeking with long historical antecedents. Yeah, long. I mean, you can go right back to the Middle Ages, of course. But for our purposes, the critical thing, I think, comes in the 1880s and 90s when the German colonial league is very keen on overseas territories. But in fact, many German nationalists have always looked east and think about the east and the possibilities of the east. And that's revived in the 1920s when they lose their colonial empire completely. And those Germans who want living space, and living space is a buzzword of the 1920s, where are they going to get it? Well, they look, they're going to get it in the East. The East is primitive, barbaric. The Soviet Union is a, a barbarous system. We'll take it over and modernise it and civilise it. When you talk about the German Colonial League and you talk about this idea of living space, it seems so absolutely bonkers to us now. And it's so recent. And it's espoused by people actually with whom we share quite a lot. These are not 14th century Mongols, we do feel quite some distance. For me, I'm reading a book, I was so terrified by how quickly that pendulum can shift and one wonders whether in our lifetime, because this is something that occurred in the lifetime of people alive today, in the lifetime of our children, our grandchildren, will we ever see that again? I mean, it was such a radically different way of looking at the world. Mm, well, it's a horrifying thought. I mean, the extraordinary thing is, yes, when I wrote the book, I was familiar with it, much of this, of course, as I grew up. But the more I wrote, the more distant it seems and the more fantastic it seems. But these are people, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents, who experienced this, whose worldview was like this, whose mental map of the world was like that. In 100 years' time, who knows? I mean, I'm, you know, historians are very bad at predicting the future. But who knows? Crisis, we hope, is going to go away, but there's plenty of crisis today. But the mental map we have will be different. We now have a world of nation states. We have superpowers who are not superpowers from the 1930s. We no longer have territorial empires. Europe, apart from Britain, now has a, a union 
So our mental map of the world is different from the mental map of the 1930s. That was a mental map that was essentially anachronistic. It drew on hundreds of years of European history. And that, it seems to me, is what was brought to an abrupt end in 1945. Well, I think that's true, but that's what's so powerful about your work is the mental map. Today, we spend a lot of time talking about, perhaps we're all a bit Marxist, we talk about the kind of economic substructure, we talk about technology, and we talk about climate breakdown, as if these are giant forces that are impelling us and sort of limited things that humans can do about it. Your work does put culture, identity, and ideas squarely at the heart of this, one of the greatest tragedies that ever befell the human race. That makes the things that we say and do and write and share very, very important. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the discourses in Japan in the 1920s or Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, what drives it are ideas, buzzwords, the culture, and those are absorbed. It was all by Hitler, for example, who doesn't make a lot of this up himself. You know, he draws on an idea world already there in Germany in the 19th century. Yes, I mean, that's one of the things I want to get across in my book, how important it is, the way people think, you know, the culture they develop, the ideas that they feel are legitimate. And that's something we need to be aware of you know, in the 21st century. Who are creating the buzzwords? How do we think about the future? What are the dangers involved in any of this? I mean, I think we live in a less malign world now than in the 1920s and 30s, but it's still something I think one needs to be aware of. We can't go around every single nation and talk about how they remember the war. I'm always struck by the Soviet celebrations on their version of V-Day when they often invite the Chinese and they have a quite a sort of militaristic march through Red Square. It always feels somewhat different, disturbingly different to the way we think about it in the West. But we have our own idiosyncrasies when we remember the war. Do you tear your hair out when you hear the way that the Second World War is bandied about in our popular discourse? I mean, how should we think about it? How should we remember it here in the UK? Well, I think we should probably remember with a bit more humility. There are plenty of things in Britain's war effort which one might like to gloss over. But we must remember that waging total war, of course, makes for a relative morality. You've got to win the war. And if that involves bombing German cities or indeed dropping atomic bombs on Japan, at the time you can see how people were able to justify it. And I think we need to see it as not as a straightforward good war, but to see that to win the war, you've got to make choices which later on you might look back at and regret. And that seems to me to be something we need to be aware of. But it's not all a story of the good and the great. It's a mixed story. Thank you very much, Richard. We haven't even scratched the surface. The surface remains unscratched of your gigantic work. But I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about it. I hope one day I get a chance to talk to you again. Tell everyone what the book's called. The book is called Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.